I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Welcome back, Refiner. You've once again found yourself listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. I'm your host, Alan S. Our look at those things that inspired the creation of Severance continues with another installment of the Severed Origins series. A little backstory here, Refiners. I've got to admit, my Origins apps up to now have been things I enjoy. Matrix, Brazil, and Office Space were already big favorites of mine. Since I do like to discover new movies, I was thinking maybe I should step out of my comfort zone for this next Origins episode. I had so much fun discovering playtime for the last podcast, I figured I'd try another item on Dan Erickson's list I wasn't familiar with. Dan has mentioned the 1991 David Cronenberg movie Naked Lunch as one of his inspirations. I knew the title, but that was about it. I knew it was considered a troubling classic and had been a punchline on a couple of Simpsons episodes. Beyond that, I really didn't know anything about either the 1959 William S. Burroughs book or the 1991 movie. So I dove in. The movie is a loose and strange adaptation of an incredibly strange and borderline obscene novel. The movie is really more about the writing of the novel than it is about anything in the book. The book is considered unfilmable. I watched the 1991 movie Naked Lunch, Dear Refiner. It's directed by David Cronenberg. No offense to Mr. Cronenberg or his fans, but his body horror stuff is just not my cup of tea. Ever since a 17-year-old me watched a guy's head explode in scanners, I've made it a point to avoid a lot of Cronenberg stuff. Sure, I saw The Fly with Jeff Goldblum, but it wasn't pleasant. I enjoyed History of Violence from 2005, but I'm always very careful to check the reviews before I watch something from DC. If I were to sum up Cronenberg's directing style in one word, it would probably be gooey. The movie version of Naked Lunch is very gooey, but it goes beyond gooey and dives headlong into incredibly weird and outright insane. It's his semi-autobiographical take on William S. Burroughs as he was writing the 1959 book. Cronenberg wrote the script with the blessing of Mr. Burroughs himself. Everybody is an unreliable narrator because they're all on hardcore hallucinogens. Typewriters turn into giant, disgusting bugs which talk to their owners with a vaguely British accent. These are giant, gooey, disgusting bugs which still have keys as part of their faces so, you know, you can still type on their giant, gooey bug bodies. Although I kind of wish I hadn't, I did watch the whole thing. I saw the mugwumps, all of it. I molded over for a couple of days deciding just how or even if I wanted to break this thing down. I posted my dilemma to the Patreon page asking the patron refiners for some guidance. A big thanks to patron refiner Jennifer J., who basically talked me out of doing Naked Lunch. I mentioned in my post I'd also been considering the 1998 movie The Truman Show. It's also listed as one of Dan Erickson's inspirations. Jennifer J. felt Truman might be a better choice. After careful consideration, I agreed. To be completely honest, I really had no desire to describe giant, gooey, disgusting bugs or weird, drug-fueled orgies. Sure, Truman's show is safer. It may not be as far outside of my comfort zone as The Naked Lunch, but it 
also won't leave me nauseous and feeling like I need a shower. Take note, if you become a patron refiner for only $5 a month, no guarantees, but you could be helping me select future podcast topics. Thanks, Jennifer J., for your input, and of course, a big thanks to you and all of the patron refiners. Want to join us as a patron refiner? Just get on over to patreon.com slash severedpod. That's patreon.com slash severedpod. I remember liking The Truman Show when it first came out in December of 1998. I don't think we saw it in the theater because we had a three-year-old at the time. It was a Friday night blockbuster rental, I'm sure. I wasn't a diehard Truman fan. It's not one I think I've ever even rewatched, but I remember it as being good. I know it was well-made and even fun. It's the first time Jim Carrey tried drama. Well, dramedy. I remember being surprisingly pleased with his work and enjoyed watching it. I've never been much for Jim Carrey's comedies. I got a chuckle out of Fire Marshal Bill on Living Color, but I didn't follow Mr. Carrey to the big screen. I was definitely not a fan of Ace Ventura. I'm not a big talking butt guy, but it was his Ace Ventura performance which got the attention of Truman director Peter Weir. Weir saw Carrie as having a Charlie Chaplin energy. Weir felt he could channel the energy of Carrie's personality into the character of Truman. Getting anyone to believe Jim Carrey as a dramatic actor was a tough sell, even on the set of The Truman Show. Carrey and director Weir were so serious about being serious, doing Jim Carrey lines around the set could get you reprimanded or even fired. This was a new, serious, and dramatic Jim Carrey who could also deliver a hilarious bathroom mirror scene. More on that when we get to it. So, I rewatched The Truman Show. If you want to watch before you listen, it's available a lot of places. You can stream it with a subscription on Paramount Plus, DirecTV, Prime Video, and Sling TV. If you're cool with commercials, Truman also streams for free on Pluto TV. All of this info is, of course, subject to change, but it seems to be a fairly available title. I gotta say, I had forgotten just how well-made and fun this movie is. It's also serious, amazing, a cool premise, which is well-directed, well-written, and well-acted. As a bonus, no gooey bugs or weird orgies either. So, refiners, if you're ready, let's open the Origins file marked The Truman Show. As usual, refiners, soul-crushing, debilitating spoilers are ahead for The Truman Show. If you haven't seen it and don't want to know what happens, stop the podcast now, and I'll talk to you in a couple of hours. <coughs> you back? Okay, cool. Let's continue. The Truman Show, directed by Peter Weir and starring Jim Carrey, Ed Harris, and Laura Linney, didn't start out with any of those people in place or even that title. As was the way of Hollywood in the 80s and 90s, Truman went through numerous personnel changes, both in front of and behind the camera. Andrew Nicole's one-page treatment from May of 1991 was titled The Malcolm Show. This is a case of one origin story feeding another origin story. The concept of Nicole's treatment borrowed heavily from a 1959 Philip K. Dick novel called Time Out of Joint. It was about a man who was being forced to live in an alternate reality without knowing it. PKD, of course, is also a Dan Erickson influence and the subject of his own Origins episode back when we broke down Paycheck. 
If you haven't already, make sure to check out that episode of the podcast. Additionally, the Truman treatment was also very similar to a 1986 episode of the anthology series Amazing Stories. In the story Secret Cinema, a woman named Jane becomes increasingly agitated thinking she is being filmed and pranked by a secret cinema society. Spoiler, she was. The same theme was also visible in a 1989 Twilight Zone episode called Special Service. In it, a man discovers he's actually been living in a controlled environment without his knowledge for the past five years. Nicole's first draft of the script that would become Truman had some very heavy sci-fi overtones. By all accounts, it was also pretty dark, set in a duplicated New York City, which included staged crimes. One scene in an early script included a staged rape. Truman doesn't even try to help the actress being attacked. In the script, the performers staging the rape were shocked by how uncaring Truman had been. This may have been because this earlier version of Truman, or Malcolm, had his own problems to contend with. The main character in Nicole's early drafts was a seriously flawed personality with a drinking problem. By 1993, the draft had been purchased by producer Scott Rudin for just over a million dollars. The plan was Paramount Pictures would distribute and writer Andrew Nicole would make his directing debut with his own script. The budget at the time was set at $80 million. Paramount execs didn't like the idea of putting that much money in the hands of a freshman director. Paramount bought off Nicole, paying him extra to step aside as director so they could bring in an A-lister like Brian De Palma. De Palma was in negotiations to direct Truman when he changed agents. He left for UTA, the United Talent Agency, in March of 1994. UTA took De Palma's career in a different and very profitable direction. He would direct the first Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise in 1996. With De Palma no longer available, Paramount considered a star-studded list of replacements. A-list directors like Tim Burton, Sam Raimi, Terry Gilliam, the aforementioned David Cronenberg, Barry Sonnenfeld, and Steven Spielberg were all considered to helm Truman. I've seen conflicting reports about Brian Singer also being on that list. Some reports said Singer wanted to direct but was considered too inexperienced by Paramount. I've also seen accounts claiming Singer was tapped to direct, but then he chose to drop out of the project on his own. Peter Weir signed on in early 1995. He was suggested by screenwriter Andrew Nicole. Big bonus with Weir from the studio standpoint, he would produce Truman for $60 million. He was already saving the studio $20 million before even calling action. Weir was an Australian filmmaker with a long history of making well-regarded films that were not wildly successful at the box office. He helped make Mel Gibson his star with his 1981 film Gallipoli. The peak of his early Aussie career was his highly regarded 1982 film The Year of Living Dangerously, also starring Gibson. Weir's first American film was the 1985 Harrison Ford thriller Witness. Weir would also direct the darker Mosquito Coast in 1986. His 1989 hit Dead Poets Society would give the world a far more dramatic Robin Williams. Poets would also make some money at the box office and attract Oscar nominations. Weir had already successfully channeled a high-energy comedian into a dramatic role. Could he do it again with Carrie? 
Prior to signing on for Truman, Weir hadn't directed anything since the 1993 Jeff Bridges sci-fi thriller, Fearless. Weir loved Nicole's concept, but he didn't like the dark and depressing script. He wanted it to be funnier, for one thing. He knew he could keep it light while still hitting on the themes of media intrusion in our lives and the ethics of reality television. Weir felt like he had to convince movie audiences that TV audiences would really tune in something like The Truman Show on a 24-7 basis. Weir didn't think the dark, drunken, flawed Truman of Nicole's early drafts was someone audiences would want to spend a lot of time with. Weir was pushing for an idyllic existence, a place with families, kids, dogs, and picket fences. Weir envisioned Truman in a shiny, happy Hollywood version of a 1950s-style American dream. Only in the Truman version, everything you saw on screen was also for sale. Although it's possible to cite numerous book, TV, and movie influences with similar themes as The Truman Show, Weir had an interesting take on his inspiration for the main character. He said in an interview that to him, Truman was singer Michael Jackson. Jackson grew up on television. He was a person who had been in the limelight with zero privacy since he was about six years old. The only difference between Truman and Michael is that Michael knew he was being watched. Many say this always-on aspect to his existence most likely led to his progressively weird behavior and a later mental decline. I don't know what hold Peter Weir had over Andrew Nicole. Weir must be quite a salesman because somehow he got Nicole to rewrite his script a total of 16 times before there was a draft Weir would approve. In late 1995, Jim Carrey was signed on to star as Truman. Early cast lists had shown Robin Williams in the Truman role. This may have been a placeholder put there because of Williams' earlier work with Weir on Dead Poets Society. Williams was never formally approached for the Truman role. Gary Oldman had been cast as the darker, uglier Truman all the way back when Andrew Nicole was still slated to direct. The change in both director and direction, of course, meant a change in star. Weir was sold on Canadian-born Carrie as Truman and wouldn't even consider anyone else, not even Samuel L. Jackson, who had been offered the role. Jackson wasn't all that interested and said he really didn't get the concept, so he dropped out. As mentioned, it was Carrie's performance as Ace Ventura that sold Weir. Weir thought Carrie's Charlie Chaplin energy coupled with his megawatt charisma would allow him to easily pull off the Truman character. It would be Carrie's first dramatic role, although, as rewritten, the part still had some flashes of goofiness. Carrie seemed to be just as committed to the project as Weir. At the time, he was the $20 million man. Carrie was getting a standard 20 mil for his comedic roles because he sold tickets. In order to accept the part of Truman, Carrie cut his asking price to $12 million so Weir could fit him into the $60 million overall budget. Because of the philosophical themes, execs at Paramount were nervous. They often referred to the project as the most expensive arthouse film they'd ever financed. They did not have high hopes for commercial success. You may not remember just how busy Jim Carrey used to be. From the mid-90s through the early 2000s, he was in two and sometimes three movies a year. Before Carrey could report for filming on Truman, he was committed to both The Cable Guy and Liar Liar. Shooting those meant he wouldn't be available for at least a year. Weir was so committed to Carrie as his star, rather than cast someone else, he decided to wait. 
From the point where Weir was first presented with a draft of the script to completion of the film was a total of more than three years. Weir had a lot of time to mull this thing over. The delay caused by Carrie's schedule would give Nicole a chance to do 12 more drafts of the script, and all the script would go through nearly 30 rewrites. In retrospect, Weir said the delays in getting started were a great accidental happening. Weir took the opportunity to flesh out all areas of the story. He created a 10-page history of the show within a show. Not surprisingly, according to Weir's history, The Truman Show was a perennial Emmy winner. 30 rewrites sounds like you'd be left with an incomprehensible mess. This was not the case, seemingly thanks to Weir's guidance. Most of the script changes were made to tighten up the logic. Could a show like this really happen? How would you pull it off if you were producing this show? Who's Truman? Where did he come from? How could someone get away with televising this person's entire life without them knowing? Where would the studio be located and what would it look like? All of these questions were answered well in advance of shooting, thanks to Weir and Nicole's meticulously rewritten script. Weir said he never wanted to give the audience an opening which might make them say, this couldn't happen. I have a lot more about production and casting, but I can get into it while we're watching. Let's go ahead and hit play on the Truman Show, Refiners. After the Paramount logo, the first image to hit the screen is, whoa, the giant head of Ed Harris as the character Kristoff. Imagine this jumping onto a theater screen in 1998. You have no warning, no buildup, no explanation, just bam, suddenly a giant Ed head is looming over you. We've become bored with watching actors give us phony emotions. Oh, you've got to love a movie that starts with a major character slamming the state of modern entertainment. We're tired of pyrotechnics and special effects. The most recent offerings from Marvel might be proving this statement true, but who is this guy? Why is he telling us what we do and don't want to see? While the world he inhabits is in some respects counterfeit, there's nothing fake about Truman himself. Ah, uh, there it is. Truman. Ed Harris is playing the character Kristoff. Kristoff is the television visionary who conceived the idea of The Truman Show and is now the supreme director of everything that happens in Truman's world. He is to Truman what Lorne Michaels is to Saturday Night Live. The beret and round wire rim glasses add to his artistic and aloof creator persona. Kristoff's power and ego have grown right along with the scope of the show, and also like Lorne Michaels. The name Kristoff is Greek. It's a variant of Christopher, which dates back to the 10th century. Some internet reviewers who apparently didn't do any research will try to tell you this name means of Christ. I even saw one who claims it means Christ off, which they're interpreting as the Antichrist. Nice try, but this isn't even close to accurate. The name actually means bearing Christ. The Greek suffix of translates as to bear. The modern meaning of the name indicates someone who holds Christ in his heart. It's never clear if this is a given name for the character or possibly something he's adopted as a stage name. He has gone the Cher and Elvis route. He's so big you know him with only one name. Dennis Hopper was originally hired to play the Kristoff character. Hopper lasted a single day on set before he was either fired or quit. Oh, mommy. Mommy. Don't you fucking love me? 
fucking me! The whole Hopper situation is a bit fuzzy. Nobody seems to want to talk about it. Some accounts say Hopper walked off, not liking the character or the director. Others claim Weir fired him due to creative differences. Interestingly, Hopper would show up in the 1999 Ron Howard-directed Ed TV, which had a similar premise to Truman. Whatever the reason Hopper left after he was gone, Jack Nicholson was approached to take over the role. Jack, of course, declined because he's a good friend of Hopper's. They had the whole Easy Rider connection. Jonathan Price was asked, but he was on vacation and couldn't get script pages. This was the mid-90s. Scripts were delivered in manila envelopes, not as email attachments. There was even a point where Peter Weir was considering taking the part himself. He claimed having the movie's director playing the show's director would be a meta-statement. This also might have been a desperate attempt to justify a bad casting decision. The studio said, uh, no. It wasn't until much later that the studio and filmmakers settled on Ed Harris. Ed Harris is a New Jersey-born actor who first started working on television in the mid-1970s. By the time he'd been tapped for Truman, Harris had serious actor cred. He'd burst into national prominence as astronaut John Glenn in 1983's The Right Stuff. He's been awarded multiple times for his work on both stage and screen. Before Truman, Harris had just come off the 1996 Ron Howard hit Apollo 13, where he played Mission Control Director Gene Kranz. The role would earn Harris his first Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Harris was selected so late in the Truman production process, by the time he was on set, Carey was done with his parts and had wrapped. Although they appear to be speaking to each other at the end of the movie, Jim Carey and Ed Harris never actually met during filming. To help him develop Kristoff, director Peter Weir provided Harris with a 10-page biography of the character. This was in addition to the story of the show. Weir and Nicole had a lot of time to develop these details. In this biography, Kristoff's early career includes producing a documentary on the homeless for which he won an award. Part of the documentary relied on him hiding cameras around a crash house, much the way cameras are hidden all around Truman's world. Harris, who only had a couple of days to work on the character before he started shooting, also had some ideas, although maybe not good ideas. One that was eventually nixed was Kristoff as a hunchback. Harris thought being deformed would inform the character. Where Kristoff the man had lived a life of torture in the shadows as a hunchback, Kristoff the creator would be able to give Truman a perfect life of happiness in the bright sunshine. As a bonus, Kristoff could live vicariously through Truman. Weir was not a fan of the idea, but it did get so far that Harris did try on a hunchback prosthetic. Word is, Harris gave up the idea after he saw what he looked like in the prosthetic. One major problem with Harris playing the creator was the difference in ages between Carrie and Harris. Harris is older, but only by 11 years and two months. If he created the show with Truman as a newborn, he would have to be at least 20-some years older than Truman. This is why the 35-year-old Carrie is playing Truman as a 29-year-old. He also wears collegiate-looking clothing and has a younger-looking haircut. Kristoff's age is never mentioned, but the 47-year-old Harris's makeup was designed to highlight wrinkles and add to his perceived age. The wire rim glasses and slow, deliberate movements were also intended to age up Harris. Kristoff tells us there are no scripts, no cue cards. It isn't always Shakespeare, but it's genuine. 
Although later we are going to see some scripts, there is an outline and a direction to Truman's life, and it's being provided by Kristoff. It's a life. We cut to a TV screen where Jim Carrey is staring into the camera. I'm not going to make it. We need to talk for a quick second here about aspect ratios. That's the width versus the height of a screen. If you were born in the 1990s, this TV picture might look oddly proportioned to you. TV screens used to be quite a bit squarer than they are now. For more than 50 years, TVs had a 4 to 3 aspect ratio. This meant no matter what size, the screen was 1.33 units wide for every one unit high. Movies have had varying aspect ratios over the years, but they're always right around twice as wide as they are high. Common American film ratios are 1.85 units wide for every unit high, or the much wider panoramic 2.39 to 1. Back in the days when we attempted to watch these very wide movies on an almost square television, we wound up with one of two poor options. Theatrical releases were either letterboxed with those heavy black bars above and below to maintain the aspect ratio, or they underwent the dreaded pan and scan treatment where the image was zoomed in. Editors would attempt to keep the most important part of the action visible in the 4x3 frame, but it was not a great way to watch a movie. The introduction of HDTV standardized television aspect ratios at 16 by 9. This meant an HDTV picture was 1.78 units wide for every one unit high, so close to that movie aspect ratio. DVDs also adopted this 16 by 9 widescreen standard. Thanks to 16 by 9, movies started to look right when watched at home. Peter Weir was very aware of these differences in aspect ratios when he was producing Truman. He decided to shoot using a narrower 1.66 to 1 aspect ratio, so the resulting frame would feel more like a television show. That's great from an artistic standpoint, but it was not very practical for exhibition or distribution. Only the original DVD retains this 1.66 aspect ratio. Theatrical cuts were cropped to the 1.85 cinema standard. The Blu-ray release was cropped to standard widescreen dimensions of 16 by 9. You're going to have to go on without me. Truman is talking to himself in the bathroom mirror. We're watching him play out this adventure from the other side of the glass thanks to a hidden camera. This is not a surprising shot to us in 2023. We're completely used to cameras hidden everywhere. Reality shows, security cameras, phone cameras, dash cameras, ring doorbell cams. These days, we either live our lives on camera or we spend a lot of hours watching those who do. At this time, in about 1997, the CBS reality series Big Brother was still a good two years away. The head of Paramount couldn't conceive of someone being spied on like Truman or believe anyone would want to watch such a thing. What we're seeing here are credits, but they're not movie credits. They are the credits for the Truman TV show. We see created by Kristoff, not writer, producer, or director. He is the creator. There is a lot of narcissism in this man, and narcissists don't like to have their worldview questioned by anyone. We find many viewers leave him on all night for comfort. Truman is still talking to the mirror. He's in the midst of some fantasy about climbing a mountain. You're going to the top of this mountain. Broken legs and all. 
The next credit is for Hannah Gill as Meryl. If you're not recognizing the actress Hannah Gill, don't worry. She's as fictional as Meryl. This is where we cut to the lovely and talented Laura Linney. I may have an unhealthy crush on Laura Linney. Hope Davis was also considered for this part, but Weir made the right choice and went with Ms. Linney. She's an American actress born in New York in 1964. Laura has more than 70 credits on her IMDb profile. She first appeared in a short in 1985, but her career really kicked in by 1992. Most recently, you may have caught Laura along with Jason Bateman, bringing money laundering and gambling to central Missouri in 44 episodes of Ozark. We soon discover this isn't actually the actress Laura Linney. This is the actress Hannah Gill being played by Laura Linney. Hannah Gill, in turn, is the actress playing Truman's wife, Meryl Burbank. Just how good is Laura Linney as an actress? She not only developed the character of Hannah Gill, she also developed the character of Meryl. Ms. Linney drew from her mother's experiences as a cancer nurse to inform her Meryl performance. Here, she seems to be justifying her role as Meryl. Well, for me, there is no there is no difference between a private life and a public life. This could be the mantra of a million YouTube influencers. My, my life is my life, is the Truman Show. Not surprisingly, the character of Hannah is regularly studied in media ethics classes. She is often accused of prostituting herself for the role. She's ready to conceive and give birth to a child with Truman, but only because it's in her contract. In a Ranker article, Laura Lenny said she'd developed a backstory for Hannah to explain her position and her performance. Weir encouraged all the primary characters to develop backstories. Hannah had been hired by Kristoff while she was still in her late teens or early 20s to play Truman's love interest. The script said they would meet while in college, fall in love, marry, and eventually conceive a child together. This was not driven by love or passion, but by her contract and Kristoff's script. Where Hannah is often seen by media scholars and critics as prostituting herself out to the production company, Linney sees it differently. She claims Hannah is making out like a bandit. Linney imagines a bump in salary for Hannah anytime she sleeps with Truman or pulls off a successful product placement. Sure, this doesn't counter the prostitute accusations, but wielding this incredible power and popularity is all part of Hannah's plan. In her mind, the ends justify the means. We never see it as viewers, but Lenny envisions Hannah as a rabidly ambitious and powerful woman. When she's not in a scene with Truman, Lenny said Hannah's off in a huge boardroom, on the phone making deals, and hauling in enormous amounts of cash. Even though Hannah may be killing it in the real world, she leaves us with what I would call a brittle smile. She looks like a woman trying to justify the choices she's made in her life. I don't know if she's so sure she did the right thing. Truman Show is a lifestyle. It's a noble life. It is a truly blessed life. Yeah, you keep telling yourself that, Hannah. Truman is continuing his skit about climbing a mountain. This is funny, but throwaway stuff. It's all ad lib by Carrie. All right, promise me one thing, though. If I die before I reach the summit, you'll use me as an alternative source of food. Paramount executives were pushing Weir to make Truman more of a comedy. They wanted to let Carrie go nuts, a la Ace Ventura. Weir resisted. Word is, although Weir was such a huge supporter of Carrie during the hiring process, they did clash once they were on set. 
part of Kerry's contract allowed him to call for rewrites. Weir and Nicole were both over rewrites by this time. Eventually, Weir realized just how talented Kerry was when it came to ad-lib and playing in the moment. Certain scenes, like these shots from his mirror in the morning, were simply Carrie's ad libbing and noodling in front of the camera with Weir's blessing. Gross. The credits continue. We see that Lewis Coltrane is playing Marlon. For no real reason I could find, this name is an amalgam of Louis Armstrong and John Coltrane. We will see him play the trumpet later, but he's nowhere near the talent of either of his namesakes. Marlon is Truman's best buddy in the world. He's always carrying a sixer of beer, ready to talk things out over a cold one. The beer itself has its own great backstory. We'll get to that later. Right now, we need to meet Marlon. It's all true. It's all real. Nothing here is fake. Yeah, but everything on the show is fake. At the top of the show, Kristoff even said Truman's world is counterfeit. Maintaining this illusion of reality is important to Kristoff. His cast knows what story he wants told about the show. Nothing you see on this show is fake. It's merely controlled. Sure, much the same way the lions are controlled at the zoo. The actor Lewis Coltrane is being played by the actor Noah Emmerich. Emmerich is awesome as an everyman. Here he makes the perfect best friend since he and Truman were kids. Emmerich's an American actor from New York City. He was born in February of 1965. Noah's a tall drink of water, standing 6'3 and a quarter. He attended Yale, where he was a member of an a cappella singing group. At NYU Film School, he wrote and directed an award-winning short film called The Painter. Emmerich's first IMDb entry was a guest part on a 1993 TV series called Flying Blind. Emmerich got his first movie credit the same year, playing a rookie cop in Last Action Hero. Emmerich has more than 60 entries on his IMDb profile. I don't know if he's still working, but he was busy right up until 2022. He racked up four credits in 13 episodes of TV that year. He didn't have any listed credits in 2023. If the character names Merle and Marlon are kind of ringing a bell, you're probably picking up on more of Nicole and Weir's creative wordplay. Many of the characters in Truman's world are named after famous real-world movie stars. These are fun for the audience to figure out. Truman has no clue what they mean because he's never heard of any real actors. Meryl Streep and Marlon Brando were the inspiration for these two. We'll meet an extra who catches Truman's eye a little later. Her character name is Lauren Garland, which is a mashup of Lauren Bacall and Judy Garland. These snippets of behind-the-scenes interviews have me wondering about something. I found an IMDb listing for a companion promotional show produced for real broadcast TV. The release date only says 1998. It must have come out that summer, right around the time of the Truman premiere on June 5th. It was called The Truman Show, colon, True Talk. It's hosted by Harry Shearer playing the character Mike Michelson. We'll meet Mike a little later in the movie. He's the guy who hosts the Truman After Show discussions. The True Talk TV show was 22 minutes, so a network half hour. It also featured all of the major players except for Truman because, well, he doesn't know the other folks are actors. I haven't been able to find this actual program. I was kind of hoping it might be on YouTube. I have found descriptions and reviews. It seems to be more interviews just like what we're seeing here in the opening. I really would love to track down a copy of that special. 
A title card for the TV show comes up. It says The Truman Show, which also happens to be the name of our movie. So what we just watched were not movie credits. These were TV show credits. A new broadcast day of The Truman Show has begun. Damn it. That's an order. Maybe just your love handles. I have love handles. This is the kind of content viewers are wanting from their Truman. From off camera, we hear a voice. Truman, you're going to be late. Okay. Truman sighs and leaves the mirror. Truman is in his late 20s, but he does have some very immature attitudes about some things. This might be because some of the early script passes had Truman as recently graduated from high school. Carrie's casting meant high school angst was replaced by an early midlife crisis. Truman's immaturity might also have something to do with the charmed and pampered life he's led as the unwitting star of his own TV show. As Truman leaves the bathroom, a card comes up telling us this is day number 10,909. Yes, refiners, they gave us an actual number. As you know, this is kind of like red meat for me. Let's break this down. 10,909 days is just under 30 years. Accounting for leap years, this puts us 48 days away from Truman's 30th birthday. Truman will be handed a newspaper with the date Friday, December 13th on it. It won't have a year, but if we do a search for years with a Friday the 13th in December, the only one in the range of the movie's production is 1996. There was one in 1991, and there wouldn't be another one after 96 until 2002. It's possible Truman's timeline is unique to his world and doesn't correspond in any way to our calendar. If the in-world of The Truman Show is 1996, going back 10,909 days would be Sunday, January 29th of 1967, Truman's birthday. Jim Carrey's actual birthday is January 17th of 1962, so the movie has aged Truman down by five years to enhance the age difference between Truman and Kristoff. Okay, so maybe we know Truman's birthday, and because of the day count, we definitely know he's just shy of 30 years old. Let's take this a step further. This is getting into a theory I found in the IMDb trivia section. Throughout the movie, we will flash to shots of various Truman fans who are watching the show. Two of these viewers will be a couple of parking garage security guards watching at work. At the end of the movie, we can clearly see a calendar on their wall. Doesn't have a month listed on it, but it seems to be May of 1997. It starts on the right day, ends on the right day, and the last week of the month is marked vacation. Since that would fall over Memorial Day, this also tracks. Now, why would Truman's world be set in December of 96, but the real world seems to be in May of 97? Well, the theory put forth by this IMDb contributor makes sense, kind of. They think Truman's world is five months behind the real world to allow for leading product placement. For instance, since Christmas is just around the corner in Truman's world, if Truman were given some sponsored product as a Christmas present, the time offset would give the advertiser plenty of lead time to promote their as-seen-on-the-Truman-show product. I like this idea in theory. In practice, there are a couple of problems. First off, I'd call the lead time excessive. I don't see a company promoting a possible Christmas gift in May. October, even September, sure, but May is 
pretty early. Also throughout the movie, even though it's December, we don't see any indications that anyone in Seahaven is preparing for Christmas. This theory as to why the dates don't match up is interesting, but the guard's visible calendar may have been a production error instead of an intentional clue. I will point out the visible dates when we get to them so you can have a look for yourself, but don't worry, this is all I'm going to do on the timeline of Truman. The world of Truman is really timeless. If anything, it's set in a fairy tale version of the United States in the 1950s. Peter Weir wanted to portray the mythical American dream. It doesn't matter what year it is inside the dome, because Truman lives a life that's, well, as Marlon says, controlled. We cut to the exterior of Truman's house. We can hear birds chirping. Good morning! The family across the way waves back. Morning! Dad's in a suit with his briefcase. Mom is in a Donna Reed dress holding their TV cute daughter on her hip. It's practically a scene out of Leave it to Beaver, except for the fact this family is African American. Truman responds with his standard greeting. It's become one of his catchphrases on the show. Oh, and in case I don't see you. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. IMDb contributors have pointed out how this phrase is an unintentional greeting for the whole world. It may be morning in Truman's world, but not everywhere in the real world. I think this family across the street is being played by Fritz Dominique as the father, the mother is Angel Schmite, and her actual daughter, Natasha Schmite. It's hard to tell because none of these folks included a picture on their IMDb profile. Truman's next-door neighbor is Spencer. He's an older guy in a cap. Morning, Truman. Morning, Spencer. Spencer is being played by Ted Raymond. Ted is an American actor originally from Newton, Massachusetts. Ted tried acting after getting out of the military in 1977. He didn't have any luck, moved to Florida, and became a sports writer. He let his SAG membership lapse. 20 years later, when he got this part on Truman, Ted reactivated his union membership. He didn't do a whole lot with it. He has this credit on Truman, and he also has a credit on the True Talk TV show I mentioned. But that's it for nearly 20 more years. He then shows up in an episode of Better Call Saul in 2017, and an episode of something called Raising Buchanan in 2019. Interesting personal note, Ted's nickname is Ferret. Neighbor Spencer's whole deal is to point a camera at Truman. It's the black disc on the side of his trash can. To us, Spencer is being pretty obvious about putting the can in Truman's face. To Truman, this is just Spencer. He's a bit eccentric, but a good guy to have for a neighbor. Spencer also has a dog. Hey, Pluto. No, no, no. Get down. He won't hurt you. Get down. Yep, also a famous canine performer's name. Well, animated canine. Pluto isn't very well behaved. He backs Truman up against his car and jumps on him. Truman does not look thrilled about Pluto's attention. We get multiple camera angles on this scene, including one from the ground looking up. We also get a pretty good look at Truman's ring when he backs up against the car. This ring with the black setting is actually a camera. We'll get the backstory on this ring a little later. Wow, would you check the houses, the street, the lovely white picket fences, and the incredible landscaping of this neighborhood? This would be an amazing set if it were a set. This is actually a town. The exteriors, the street, and driving scenes, all of it is being shot in a real town which was taken over by the production. The fictional town of Seahaven is set in a real place called Seaside, Florida. 
Based on his odd acting history, I'm wondering if Ted Raymond, who's playing neighbor Spencer, may have already been a resident of Seaside. There are more than 300 extras on this movie, and most of them are actual residents of Seaside, Florida. Seaside is a master-planned community. It was founded in 1981 on 80 acres of Florida Panhandle by Robert Davis and his wife, Daryl. They have a cameo later in the movie. Seaside sits on a parcel Robert inherited from his grandfather. Seaside was one of the first communities ever designed based on a concept called New Urbanism. The new urbanism aesthetic promotes environmentally friendly living spaces with an emphasis on walkable neighborhoods, a variety of housing types, and abundant integrated green spaces. The design of Seaside was finalized in 1985. Seaside is entirely privately owned, so all decisions about zoning, building placement, landscaping, every detail of the town is dictated by the owners. A commercial hub is in the town center with a radiating street pattern, pedestrian alleys, and open spaces throughout the residential areas. Seaside is so unique, it is the topic of lectures at major architectural schools. Design professionals from all over the world regularly make a pilgrimage to the Florida Panhandle to study the details of Seaside. Director Peter Weir and his pre-production team were scouting locations looking for the perfect sea haven. When Weir arrived at Seaside, he told the team, to unpack. He knew instantly they'd found their town. Pre-production began the same week the team first arrived in Seaside. Interesting side note about Truman's house. This house in Seaside was the boyhood home of the now notorious Florida MAGA Republican representative Matt Gates. The house number in the movie is 36, but in real life, this house in Seaside, Florida is number 31. Not sure why they changed it. If this were the Matrix, I'd say it's a 3 reference. 36 is divisible by 3, 6, and 9. If you add 3 and 6 together, you get 9, which is 3 squared. 36 is a great 3 reference, but I doubt it means anything here. Truman is brushing himself off and getting in his car when we cut to a shot looking up into the sky. A cylinder made of glass and metal crashes to the pavement right in front of Truman's house. Truman approaches the object which is now laying in the middle of the street. Truman cautiously touches the foreign object. Even if you aren't involved in video or film production, you probably recognize a studio light. Truman, of course, does not. There's a shot here through two driveway posts I want to point out. We are looking at Truman from a front yard. Two decorative square pillars, maybe six inches by six inches and four feet high, are located on either side of the driveway. If you look at the tops of these pillars just below the cap, there are more of the round black discs mounted on all four sides of each pillar. They look like decoration, but these are more cameras, just like the one that was mounted on Spencer's trash can. There are two different kinds of camera views happening throughout the movie. We sometimes get to see the in-show shots being taken by Kristoff and the cameras he uses to produce the TV show. We also have those shots that are only available to us as movie viewers. This angle we're seeing through the driveway posts is not coming from one of Kristoff's cameras. This is us being given a view as movie watchers so we can see these other cameras. It appears that anytime we are looking through show cameras, the corners of the frame are rounded with a black edge. Anytime we're seeing the movie's view of a scene, there's no edging. 
This camera technology with all of these black discs doesn't really exist at this time. Bluetooth is still about four years away from commercial introduction, and digital pickups are still big and slow. The amazing camera tech we see in the movie is futuristic. It has been developed for Kristoff and his production. We will see indications of wireless cameras as small as a pendant on a necklace. Later, Kristoff will tell us in an interview that there are more than 5,000 cameras positioned throughout the town. We cut to a view over Truman's shoulder. This is another great shot we get as movie viewers, but Kristoff could never cut to. A handwritten label on the side of the light says, This is Sirius, then in parentheses, 9 Canis Major. Sirius is the brightest star in the night sky, and it is a part of the Canis Major constellation. There is no number 9 associated with the real Sirius that I could determine. This would appear to be the light that simulates Sirius mounted in the roof of the dome that houses Seahaven. Truman picks up the light, looks it over, then looks up into the sky with a confused and concerned expression. That was very weird. Jump cut to Truman driving to work. We hear a radio broadcast. Here's a news flash just then. An aircraft in trouble began shedding parts as it flew over Sea Haven just a few moments ago. Everything about Sea Haven is in service to Truman, including the radio station. It's how Kristoff explains away those things that sometimes don't make sense. We get the feeling Truman is starting to question the nature of his existence. His dissatisfaction with these explanations is growing. He's slowly realizing there's something weird about his environment. This didn't start with the falling light, but the falling light has added to his distrust. In a deleted scene, we are shown that Truman picked up the light and put it in his trunk. In the scene, he shows it to his good buddy Marlin and asks if he thought that thing could have really fallen off a plane. Marlin, of course, says, sure, it must have. Cut to inside Truman's car. This view is coming through the radio in his dash. This is one of Kristoff's cameras. The radio announcer is jovial and personable. He seems to be talking directly to Truman. But hey, how do you feel today? Mm. <laughs> That's good. You think of flying somewhere? Nope. Oh, good. This is classical Clive and his classical drive. Clive is being voiced by American actor Jake Eberly, but he's not credited. Jake has 97 performer credits on his IMDb profile, but you've probably never seen him in anything. Being uncredited is also pretty common for Jake. Almost all of Jake's work is as the English language dub voice for foreign films. Clive is hyped and happy. He tells Truman, or I mean his listeners, to forget about the perils of flying and relax with a little classical music. Settle back and let this music calm you down. The Seahaven radio station plays only classical because of rights issues. Classical music is in the public domain. You don't have to pay rights or royalties on public domain pieces that appear in your TV show. To avoid rights issues, Kristoff has scored Truman's life with nothing but public domain content. Public domain means all intellectual property rights to the work have expired and nobody gets paid for its use. In the United States in 2023, any content first published or released prior to January 1st of 1928 
is now in the public domain. That's anything 95 years ago. Starting on January 1st of 2024, any works published in calendar year 1928 move to the public domain. This is why right now we're hearing news stories about Mickey Mouse and his 1928 short, Steamboat Willie, going into the public domain. Eventually, by 2048, any intellectual property rights to works published by creators who died 70 years or more earlier will expire, and those works will automatically move into the public domain. This is a quick overview of public domain. There are a lot of ins and outs and special circumstances for certain properties. It's a whole mess. If you'd like to know more, I invite you to do your own research into the public domain. We cut to a beautiful wide panoramic shot of the downtown area. There's a lot of CGI happening throughout this movie, and it was kind of a challenge to get it all done. During 1997 and 98, some of the largest special effects houses in Hollywood were making the change over to digital effects creation. Jurassic Park and Toy Story brought CGI to the mainstream in 1995. By 97, every director was clamoring for digital enhancements to their scenes. Production houses were trying to accommodate, but the changeover from miniatures and live-action effects to in-computer animations was painful. It included a steep learning curve. Many of the tallest buildings in Seahaven are CGI extensions of existing buildings. CGI creators said it was a bit easier doing buildings for Seahaven because they didn't have to age them or add where the buildings in Truman's world are always TV perfect. We cut to a newsstand. The vendor seems to carry real magazines, just not a huge variety. We can see a number of copies of Dog Fancy, a couple of child-rearing magazines. There's an issue of Car Sound. On the outside of the kiosk are cooking and gardening mags. We have paper there, will you, Errol? Earl, the news vendor, is being played by American actor Mal Jones. Mal has 42 acting credits, including the 1988 sequel Cocoon, The Return. Mal passed away in 2014 at the age of 86. As a seemingly casual afterthought, Truman grabs a magazine. Oh, and, uh, one of these. The wife loves her fashion mags. Earl asks if there's anything else. That's the whole kit and caboodle. We're then following Truman as he walks through the very busy streets of downtown Seahaven. A number of folks greet him as he passes. This is familiar territory for Truman. He goes through this same ritual every morning on his way to work. As he's passing a poster for Kaiser Chicken, twin brothers aggressively stop Truman to talk to him. Good morning, Truman. Hey, how are you guys? As they're talking, one of the brothers grabs Truman's shoulder and pushes him up against the poster on the wall behind him. Beautiful day, isn't oh, it? Always. Uh, and how's your lovely wife? The title, Free Range Kaiser Chicken, fills the frame behind Truman's head. Kaiser is an advertiser who is paying to get some screen time for their chicken. The brothers, Ron and Don, are tasked with making sure Truman is in the right spot for the best angle on this Kaiser poster. There are pleasantries, small talk, how's the wife. Then, as suddenly as this interaction began... Well, nice talking to you, you Truman. Too. You well, too. Let's go now. The brothers are keeping an ongoing discussion alive about buying some insurance from Truman. Hey, think about that policy, yes, huh? Thank you. Okay, that's two for one. That's a good deal. Yes, Doppelganger special. These twins really are twins, and they are not 
actors. In real life, these guys are Ron and Don Taylor. Born in 1947, they're actually a couple of cops from Walton County, Florida. Even though they aren't actors, they do have two listings on their IMDb profile, The Truman Show and The True Talk TV Special. Ron and Don were hired as security guards on The Truman Set. Director Peter Weir was impressed by how cordial and outgoing they were. Jim Carrey noted their natural acting talent and said they had a great rapport with all of the cast and crew. Weir was wanting twins for this gag. Rather than hire someone, Peter decided to give Ron and Don a shot. As you can see, it worked out pretty well. I found a July 1997 article from the Northwest Florida Daily News about these two brothers and their Hollywood odyssey. The article came about because they were being flown to Hollywood by Paramount to do some ADR re-recording work on their parts. Don said it was the first time he'd been on a plane in 30 years. The whole thing was a surprise whirlwind. They also talked in the article about how this happened. They were standing around on set one day doing their job as security guards when they were approached by Peter Weir and Jim Carrey about playing the brothers. They quoted Jim Carrey in the article as saying, I guarantee you this won't be your last acting job. Jim may have been a bit overly enthusiastic here. Actually, this was their only acting job, but it sounds like it was an amazing experience for these two very funny twin cops. The entrance to Truman's building includes a revolving door. Truman is such a nice guy, he stands back to allow his co-workers to enter first. Cut to Truman at his desk. A nameplate tells us this is Truman Burbank. The name Truman literally means true man, as in, this is the only real guy in this world. Burbank comes from the fact the giant dome used as the Truman Show studio is located in Burbank, California. We'll find out more about it in just a little bit. The Paramount lot, where they actually did interior shots, was also located in Burbank, California. Truman looks around furtively before casually reaching for his phone. We can see books, file folders, envelopes, and a magic eight ball sitting on Truman's desk. There's also a headshot of wife Merrill over on his credenza. Yes, hello. Uh, could I have directory assistance for Fiji, please? We don't yet know why he's interested in Fiji, but we will soon find out. Truman thinks he can do things in private. There is not a single moment of Truman's day that is truly private. His overseers, the producers, they know what he's doing, so they've alerted a co-worker. As Truman is on the phone, the guy in the next cubicle peers over at him. He's trying to show him the headline on today's newspaper. Truman, did you see this? The Island Times says Sea Haven has been voted, quote, the best place on Earth. It's the planet's top town. Why would anyone want to go anywhere else? This guy gives Truman a big okay and thumbs up hand signs. He's a bit of an over-actor. I don't see him getting a lead role anytime soon. Truman tries to cover faking his side of the call. Uh, I'm sorry, ma'am. If, if uh, he's in a coma, he's probably uninsurable. The newspaper hype guy leaves, and Truman again asks for Fiji directory assistance. They don't have anything listed for a Lauren Garland. At this point, we also don't know who this Lauren person is. Okay, do you have a Sylvia Garland? As for Sylvia. Or Sylvia. The operator says they don't have a thing. I'm very sure Truman was not talking to the real Fiji directory assistants. I do love how quickly the call went through. 
There's a cut here as Truman is asking for the number. We see a guy who looks a lot like Peter Krause glance over at Truman's desk. Oh, hey, that is Peter Krause. We're going to meet him in a minute. Look behind his head. Even though Truman's world seems to be set in the 1950s, his office is equipped with very 90s-looking desktop computers. I wonder what the internet looks like in Truman's world, or if he's even heard about such a thing. There's no way they'd let him log on to the real web. Truman looks dejected as he turns back to the papers on his desk. He lifts up a folder to reveal the magazine he bought earlier. You know, the one for his wife. As he slides it out from under the folder, I was able to get a pretty good freeze, but no date information. This looks like a real she magazine cover from the mid to late 1990s. It has the right font in the title on the cover page. She was a UK women's magazine published by Hearst Media. She was in operation from 1955 until September of 2011. When she went out of business, British business journal The Economist had a little fun with the announcement. They ran an article in an August 2011 issue headlined, The End of She Magazine, colon, She's Come Undone. She's gone too far, she's lost the sun, she's come undone. Truman hides the magazine low on his credenza. Whatever he's doing is very clandestine. We're looking up at him from a camera situated under a credenza shelf. We then get a shot over his shoulder, which has to be a movie-only view. Truman flips to a perfume ad. Make sure to check this one out. It's pretty funny. He's going to open on the ad, flip to a woman's picture on another page, but then come back to this same perfume ad. The bottle of perfume in the lower left corner of the ad is labeled concubine. A concubine in Western terminology is generally a synonym for mistress. In some cultures, it's a term that means what's called a low wife or, you know, a side piece. There has never been a perfume named concubine. Even though it might be an actual issue of she, this ad is a plant. The model in the ad is actually the actress Natasha McElhone, who plays Sylvia slash Lauren Garland. But we don't know anything about that just yet. Truman is creating a composite of his true love like a police sketch artist. He's planning to rip the eyes out of the picture to add them to his composite. They will look amazingly like Lauren's eyes because they are. We can hear the soft, ambient sounds of an office. As Truman rips out Lauren's eyes, he tries to cover the sound with a cough. <coughs> and, of course, he also has to tear in the other direction. <coughs> he looks at his prize with satisfaction. We cut to a shot from across Truman's desk. In addition to the nameplate, Truman also has a golf ball pen and pencil holder, a mini lighthouse, a box of dominoes, and a miniature lifeboat sitting on his desk. We hear a voice and Truman jumps like he's been caught doing something. Lawrence. Hey, Burbank. Got a prospect in Wells Park I need you to close. It's Lawrence, Truman's manager here at the insurance agency and the guy who was peering at him just a few moments ago. Although spelled in the American style, this name is most likely inspired by legendary actor Sir Lawrence Olivier. Lawrence is being played by a hilariously pompadoured Peter Krause. This is just before Peter would break through as Casey McCall on all 45 episodes of Aaron Sorkin's critically acclaimed Sports Night. 
Krause would go from Sports Night right into 63 episodes of Six Feet Under, where he was showered with more acclaim and awards. Beginning in 2010, he was a regular on 103 episodes of Parenthood with, you guessed it, even more acclaim and awards. Peter has had a pretty amazing career, which is still in full swing. Since 2018, he's been on 96 episodes of TV series 911, and it is still in production. Truman stammers as he takes the folder. Well, Wells Park? Truman asks if he means the one on Harbor Island? You know another one? Truman says he can't do it. He comes up with an obvious lie about a dentist appointment. You're going to lose a lot more than your teeth if you don't meet your quota. Tough talk coming from Lawrence. Is he a villain in this story? Lawrence crouches down by Truman's desk, getting all confidential. He says cutbacks are coming at the end of the month. Cutbacks? Yeah. Truman needs to write this biz to avoid getting fired. Besides, a half hour across the bay, a little sea air. Do you good? Okay, so maybe Lawrence isn't a villain, but that hair is reading as sleazy. Oh yeah, the finger snap as he leaves? Also sleazy. Truman looks troubled as he slides the folder into his briefcase. We cut to an in-show shot of the Harbor Island Ferry Terminal. A group of folks is already assembled on board the Harbor Island Ferry. Check the gangplank. There's a guy dressed as Gilligan getting on. Come on, Boomer. Surely this is ringing a bell. White bucket hat, red shirt, white slacks. I wouldn't get on a boat with that guy for anything. Truman steps to the ticket window. Everything about the pier, the boat, the booth, it's all storybook idyllic. Curry's still here, huh? I might have missed it. One way or return? Return. Check the parking lot behind Truman. There are only two vehicles in it, Truman's car and a bus marked Sea Haven. Between crew and guests, there are easily a dozen people on the boat, plus the guy at the ticket booth. There are a couple of bikes parked by the ticket booth, but not nearly enough to have believably gotten everyone out here. Since this is a rarely used set, what most likely happened is the bus brought all of the players, the crew, riders, ticket guy, out to the site of the ferry set right before Truman got here. Truman is putting on a brave face, but he hesitates at the turnstile leading to the gangplank. The ticket guy is leaning out of his window watching Truman. He's as curious as anyone about what Truman is going to do. Truman goes through the turnstile. An in-show camera shot gives us a look up at the gangplank as Truman slowly passes by. But then he stops. A down-angle shot, somehow also an in-show shot, reveals a dinghy sunken alongside the dock. It's kind of eerie. Seeing the sunken dinghy is too much. Truman is almost knocked off his feet, paralyzed by fear. He decides to turn back. Do you need any help, sir? Truman tells him to go ahead. He'll be fine. Truman suffers from an intense fear of large bodies of water, especially traveling over them. This is called thalassophobia. Thalassa in Greek is sea. We'll find out why he has this condition in just a bit. Headlines calling Seahaven the greatest place to live on the planet are nice, but Kristoff's true method of controlling Truman is through fear. This mirrors the control being employed down on the severed floor, although Lumen is more transparent about their methods. Sending Truman to Harbor Island on an assignment is a good way to both test and reinforce this fear. If Truman starts to think about traveling while he's at home or at the office, he might be able to convince himself he can do it. 
Forcing him to face his fear every so often reminds him of just how debilitating it is. Truman scrambles out of the harbor area. We cut to a long overview shot of Sea Haven. It's gorgeous with a beautiful sunset happening over the water. Cut to the bushes alongside Truman's yard. Merrill is just getting home from work. She's a nurse, or at least she's playing a nurse on the show. Hi, honey. Merrill appears to have gone shopping. A brown paper grocery bag is in the basket of her very 50s-era looking bicycle. There's a cut to Truman on his knees in the garden facing away from us. Jim Carrey waggles his bony butt towards the camera. I know it got a laugh, but come on, we're supposed to be serious here. Merrill is very excited about something. Look what I got free at the checkout. She hoists the grocery bag into one arm, turns, and pulls a cardboard-backed blister pack out of the bag. It's a chef's pal. She's smiling, eyes wide, right at the perfectly oriented chef's pal package. She's perfectly lit, with a megawatt smile and love in her eyes. Weir directed the performers to lean towards the camera with eyes wide and huge smiles during these pitch segments. The Dicer Grater Peeler All-in-One. We get a close-up on the package in Merrill's hand, which says the exact same thing. The drawing of a woman in a blue apron on the package is pointing to it, saying, It works. A starburst at the top of the cardboard backing tells us the chef's pal is only $9.99. Never need sharpening, dishwasher safe. That was a 15-second ad for the chef's pal. Nice job, Hannah. I wonder what they paid for it. You'd think Truman would be suspicious about this very obviously staged product presentation. But he just says, Wow! That's amazing. And keeps digging in the garden. This kind of exuberance for a purchase, which includes far too many details, is probably a regular occurrence around the Burbank household. Truman doesn't seem to give it a second thought. The scene ends with a long shot of Truman mowing in the backyard. The design of the Chef's Pal package looks dated. Much of the aesthetic of Sea Haven is from the 1950s, including this graphic. Sea Haven also pops on camera. We're overlit everything intentionally. He doesn't want any shadows or gray areas in Truman's world. Everything is bright, shiny, happy, and perfect. Oh, and it's also all for sale. Cut to Noah Emmerich, or I mean, Louis Coltrane, only now he's acting as the character of Marlon, Truman's best friend. We're looking at him in profile as he takes a hero sip of beer. That is a beer. He turns the can to the camera so we get a nice look at the label. This is Penn Pavel's beer. It's fictional, created for this movie. This is another product placement. It's almost like Marlin is brought to us by Penn Pavel's. Later, when we cut to the Truman-themed bar, you'll notice they are also drinking Penn Pavel's. Oh, and a quick story about product placement and the cluelessness of studio execs. One of the running jokes throughout the Truman TV show is how Kristoff weaves these very obvious paid product placements into Truman's life. Peter Weir said during one of the production meetings, a Paramount suit suggested they try to secure some product placements for the movie. Weir was stunned. Was he joking? Did this guy mean real product placements? 
Yep, that's what he meant. Product placement fees are a great way to offset production costs. Weir said absolutely not throughout the movie he's making fun of product placements. They're a big joke. Weir was shocked someone would even suggest such a thing. In exasperation, Weir asked this clueless suit if he'd even read the script. Although, I think the suit may have gotten his way at least a little bit. The cash that can be made from product placements is just too much of a temptation for network execs. When we cut to a wide shot here, we can see that both Truman and Marlin drive Ford products. Truman has a Taurus sedan. Dan, Marlin's in a Ranger pickup. I don't think that's a coincidence. Unlike the chef's pal or the beer Marlin is drinking, Ford is a real brand that exists in the real world. These are also current modern Ford models, not something out of the 1950s. Ford surely paid to have their products featured so prominently in both the fake TV show and this real movie. As for that beer Marlin's enjoying, even though it's fictional, you might be familiar with it. Since Penn Pavel's appearance on The Truman Show, its beer props have appeared in numerous films and TV shows. This is because Earl Hayes Press, who created the props, are known to recycle. They made up a lot of Penn Pavel for Truman. So if you see a can or bottle of this stuff in another show, this is not an example of shared continuity. It's just a frugal use of resources. Once you know to look for it, you'll start seeing Penn Pavel's beer all over the place. It started out here on The Truman Show. It's had other confirmed movie appearances, including Stuck in Love, Donnie Darko, American Pie 2, The Dark Knight Rises, Halloween H2O, and Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay. This stuff gets around. You'll also find Penn Pavel's being enjoyed on dozens of TV shows, like Becker, Being Human, Burn Notice, Cougar Town, Chicago Fire, Go On, Just Friends, October Road, Rizzolian Isles, For Better or Worse, The Walking Dead, That 70s Show, Modern Family, and It Is All Over, Man with a Plan. And that's not even a complete list. If Pen Pavels were a real brand, they'd probably be worth a fortune by now. Truman and Marlin are driving golf balls off an unfinished bridge. Their vehicles are facing the driving range with the headlights on. The ever-present, always-full moon is hanging over everything. You know, I'm thinking about getting out, Marlin. Yeah? Out of what? Truman says he wants out of his job, out of Sea Haven, just out. Marlin immediately tries to put down this talk, telling Truman how great his life is. He's got a great job. You have a desk job. I'd kill for a desk job. Marlin, we discover, is a vending machine stalker. Truman asks if Marlin ever gets antsy, itchy feet. Trying to talk Truman out of leaving Seahaven seems to have become a priority for the entire cast. Truman must have never had a vacation, at least one where he leaves the island. Where's there to go? Truman pauses, then says with great gravity, Fiji. <laughs> where the hell is Fiji? He is fixated on Fiji. Truman grabs a golf ball for an impromptu geography lesson. I've always kind of wondered why they would even tell Truman there is more to the world. If you want to keep him from going, don't tell him it's there. He knows the world is round, and he seems to have some rough idea, at least, about geography. He points to a spot on the golf ball. This is us. <laughs> All the way around here. Fiji. Truman then says you can't get any further away before you start coming back. 
This must be Truman waxing poetic, because it isn't the least bit accurate based on what we know about Truman's location. We don't know exactly where in the world Truman thinks he's located, but we do know the exact opposite side of the world from Fiji is Timbuktu, Mali. They're 12,289 miles apart. The world is right at 24,000 miles around at its widest part. Once you've gone about 12,000 miles, then you're on your way back. Truman isn't in Timbuktu. He's really in Burbank, California, which puts him about 5,300 miles from the Fiji Islands. They're located in the South Pacific. Sure, Fiji's a long haul from California, but it's nowhere near halfway around the world. In an early draft of the script, Truman wanted to go to Australia. No shade to Australia, but I'm betting the Fiji Islands won out because they just sound more romantic and exotic. You know, there are still islands in Fiji where no human being has ever set foot. This is most likely accurate. Fiji is made up of about 300 islands in 540 islets scattered over about 1 million square miles. Only a third of those 300 islands are inhabited. Marlin's job is to keep Truman happy about his life in Sea Haven, but he realizes sometimes he can't just keep countering. Instead of continuing to tell Truman no, he decides to play a little devil's advocate. So, when are you going to go? Marlin's gamble pays off. This slight push shuts Truman down. He starts to backpedal, listing all the reasons he can't just leave. It takes money, planning can't just up and go. Marlin grins a bit. He knows he's winning this one. Right. Remember when Kramer said he was going to install levels in his apartment and Jerry said he'd never do it? This sounds a little like that discussion. I'm going to do it. Don't worry about that. Truman reminds him bonus time is just around the corner. Maybe his bonus will be his Fiji money. The tension goes out of the conversation. Truman may really want to leave, but it won't be for a while at least. Are you coming for a drink? Marlin also likes to use alcohol as a cure for Truman's woes. Truman says he can't tonight. We cut to a gorgeous long view over Sea Haven. We see the coastline, the lighthouse, and out into the water. This is a pretty picture, but it also looks a bit phony. If you look at all closely, you can see the hallmarks of 90s era CGI. Check the beam of light coming from the lighthouse. It just ends like it's solid. The searchlight also doesn't reflect on the water. It has more of a cartoony rather than a real look to it. We cut to a long shot of waves rolling in. Sea Haven is experiencing a few white caps. Another cut and we find Truman sitting in the sand watching the water. The beam from the lighthouse plays over him. As Truman is thinking, we cut to flashbacks showing us his thoughts. We discover why Truman has such a deep and mortifying fear of the water. We see a young Truman, probably eight or nine, out in a sailboat with his father, Kurt. I don't like the look of that weather, son. I think we should head back. Truman is the one who wants to keep going, so of course he's going to blame himself. They hit a terrible storm, which practically capsizes the small sailboat. His father is then killed, drowned in a sailing accident. It's TV, so nobody really died, but Truman thinks his dad is dead. This is one of those scenes that tips the scales towards Kristoff being a monster. He brutally and violently staged the drowning of Truman's father right in front of him just to mess with the poor kid's head. Yeah, it was probably also a great night for ratings. 
Something very subtle is happening in these boat accident scenes. I did not catch this until it was pointed out to me so I could be looking for it. Truman's father is wearing a ring with a big black setting. It's the same ring we've seen Truman wearing a few times now. As his father is sliding into the waves, he hands Truman this ring. It's hard to catch, but I'm pretty sure I saw it happen. The setting in the ring is a mini camera. Later, Kristoff is going to reunite Truman with his, surprise, not dead dad. When he does, Truman will give this ring back. Giving it back is also very subtle. It's not even mentioned, but you can see it happen if you're looking for it. The fact Truman gave this ring back to his dad is the primary reason they couldn't locate Truman at the end of the movie when he's on the run. We cut to a long shot from behind Truman looking at the waves. There's a storm brewing. Lightning strikes out over the water. Check this subtle but very funny detail. Whenever the lightning strikes, it reflects off the moon. The real moon is about 240,000 miles from the Earth. Lightning happens in the lower atmosphere within a couple hundred feet of the ground. Only here in Sea Haven, where the moon is actually stuck in the ceiling of the studio, could lightning reflect off the moon. Truman wouldn't notice because he's been seeing the moon do this his whole life. It's normal to him. Uh-oh, starting to rain, but uh, only where Truman is sitting. This is a malfunction in the studio rain effect. Truman stands soaked, then walks out of the column of water. Whoa, now this is weird. He turns back, realizing it's no longer raining, at least not over him. The column of water then moves following Truman. Truman runs the other way, playing with the weird column of rain. As he's laughing maniacally at the strange weather, there is another clap of thunder, and now the whole sky opens up. They need to get a tech out there to work on that rain effect. Something's wrong. Truman stands in the full rain shower for a couple of moments, then runs out of frame. You're soaked. Where have you been? We cut to an interior shot of the Burbank home. Merrill is reading what looks to be an oversized children's book. The title is The Dream Machine 2. This must be another product placement from Truman's World. It looks like a real children's book, but I couldn't find this title anywhere. There is a book called The Dream Machine. It's about the development of the personal computer. Brother also makes a sewing machine they call The Dream Machine 2, but no children's book I could find by that name. Truman doesn't answer Merrill's question. He starts right in on his beer-fueled pitch. I figure we can scrape together eight. Every time you and Marlon get together, we can bum around the world for a year on that. The economy of Sea Haven must not be susceptible to things like inflation or high interest rates. Either that, or Truman doesn't have a clue about the cost of travel, even budget travel. $8,000 in 1996 translates to about $16,000 in 2023. I just don't see Truman lasting a year on sixteen grand. If Truman were living in 1956, which sometimes it feels like he is, that eight grand would translate to about 93000 in current day buying power. For a year around the world for two people, that sounds more like it. Meryl is reading her children's book in an unfinished room of the house. They never tell us directly 
directly, but this room is most likely being converted into a nursery. It is the stated objective of Kristoff that he will televise the first on-air conception. Hannah Gill, who is playing the part of Merrill, is all in on this objective and is even trying to move the process along. She shoots down Truman's plans, telling him he sounds like a teenager. We have mortgage payments, Truman. We have car payments. These realities of life are what keep most of us from running off to bum around the world. Truman isn't ready to give in. Meryl says she thought they were going to try for a baby. Isn't that enough of an adventure? Truman says a baby can wait. He wants to explore. Meryl approaches him, telling him this explorer thing will pass. She puts a hand on his cheek, getting romantic. Let's get you out of these wet clothes. Hmm? Come to bed. She kisses his cheek. Meryl is making things kind of steamy. As you ladies know, I'm sure if you want to change the subject with a guy, sex always works. The action is headed to the bedroom. We then cut to a couple of security guards who are fans of the show. This is the first time we've gone to the other side of the camera to see who is in Truman's audience. These two seem to get in a lot of hours watching in their guard shack. They're disappointed because they know Meryl getting frisky won't lead to an R-rated scene, at least for the viewers. You never see anything anyway, though. It's Turn the camera and... Truman and Merrill do have sex. It's just discreet. This guard says they'll turn the camera, the wind blows the curtains. You don't see anything. This is, after all, a family show. These guys look like security guards, but they are listed in the credits as garage attendants. The one who speaks is being played by Joel McKinnon Miller. Fans of Brooklyn Nine-Nine should immediately recognize him as Scully. Joel has 106 performer credits on his IMDb profile, dating all the way back to a 1991 appearance on an episode of Murphy Brown. In addition to his 153 episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Joel was also a series regular on 46 episodes of the TV series Big Love. Prior to getting on television, Joel spent most of the 80s on stage. He was in a touring theatrical company and did both off-Broadway and regional theater. Joel is still working. He did two episodes of the ABC Firehouse drama Station 19 in 2023. The quiet garage attendant is being played by Tom Simmons. Tom is primarily a TV performer with an IMDb credit list that dates back to a 1986 episode of Hardcastle and McCormick. He has 67 performer credits and is also still working. Tom had appearances in two different TV series in 2023, and he has one upcoming performance listed. We cut to a sweeping panoramic shot of Sea Haven from out over the water. More public domain music scores the scene. There's the town surrounded by woods and water. No other cities or even rural houses are visible in this shot. Cutting back to the newsstand, a woman with a dachshund is buying a copy of Dog Fancy. It's the next day. A man in a fedora and gold rim glasses is reading a newspaper behind the dachshund lady. This man is an operative of Kristoff's who seems to always be keeping an eye on Truman. Don't miss the headline on his paper. Who needs Europe? The subhead says Swedish neurologist moves to Sea Haven. Well, of course, it's been voted the best city on the planet. Why wouldn't everyone want to move to Sea Haven? Also, if Truman should ever have a worry about a brain tumor, he wouldn't need to travel in order to consult with one of the world's foremost neurologists. Truman asks for today's paper. He also reaches over for another one of those fashion magazines. For the white. 
Dogs gotta have them. When asked if there's anything else, we hear... That's the whole ball of wax. These two phrases, the whole kit and caboodle, which he said yesterday, and now the whole ball of wax today, are going to be called back later in Jim Carrey's career. In the 2004 Lemony Snicket movie entitled A Series of Unfortunate Events, Carrey's character Count Olaf disguises himself as the sea captain Sham. When talking to Meryl Streep's character, he uses both of these Truman phrases. Grammar is the number one most important thing in this here word to me. It is. It's the whole ball of wax. The entire kit and caboodle. Why, without your good grammar, the whole darn shooting match could go harsh over ticket. I'm guessing these weren't scripted either place. They might just be favorite Jim Carrey idioms he likes to pull out when ad-libbing. As Truman strides off down the street headed to the office, he passes an older man in rough clothing. His eyes are red-rimmed, and he hasn't had a shave in a few days. He's rumpled and dirty-looking. Check the Modica products poster on the far wall. They're proud sponsors of The Truman Show. Modica, makers of Mo Coco, which is in the right-hand frame on the same wall. Mo Coco is Truman's favorite hot chocolate drink. Modica chocolate is really the name for a traditional sweet in Italy. It's an ancient recipe named after the town of Modica, where it originated. I've found a lot of folks who sell Modica chocolate, but I couldn't find a company named Modica. The old guy stops and turns as it dawns on Truman who he just passed. Truman slowly turns. Dad? This one word sets off a flurry of activity. This really is the actor who played Truman's dad. A guy in a fedora with his hand pressed to an in-ear communicator device suddenly swings into action. He's joined by the woman who had been in front of Truman at the newsstand. She's dropped her dog's leash so she can help subdue the old man. They each grab Truman's dad by an arm and whisk him away down the street. On cue, a pack of runners all wearing big over-ear headphones is suddenly running right in Truman's path. They can't hear him because of the headphones. He is frantically trying to force his way through the oncoming rush. Truman finally clears the runners, then barrels through a guy carrying an armload of papers and knocks a guy in a red windbreaker off his bike. Kirk, Truman's dad, is being forced onto a bus by the two who grabbed him off the street. People on the bus help out, grabbing his arms and pulling him up the stairs. Truman is pounding on the door of the bus with his newspaper. Somebody stop it! It's like they don't even hear him. There's a great detail in the background as Truman first rushes the bus. A woman is on the street corner playing music for donations. Her instrument of choice is not one you'd think of as being a solo instrument. The case this woman has open on the ground is for her cello. Since all the pop music you hear on Seahaven Radio is classical, it would follow that a street musician would want to be able to play what's on the radio, which she does on her cello. Truman runs alongside the bus for several dozen feet as it speeds away. In the background, we can see the dachshund running along the sidewalk. His leash is dragging behind. Truman is in a full-out sprint after the bus when his path is suddenly blocked by a strategically timed taxi. As Truman is standing in the street watching the bus roar away, we get a great look at the twin arches which welcome you to Sea Haven. On the arches is a phrase in Latin, unus pro omnibus, omnes pro uno. 
Translated, this means one for all and all for one. It's the motto of Sea Haven. It also happens to be the unofficial motto of Switzerland. Here in Sea Haven, they all do what they do for one man, Truman, all for one. He, in turn, is entertaining the world, which makes Truman one for all. This phrase was made famous as the battle cry of the Three Musketeers in Alexandre Dumas's 1844 novel. Although made famous by Dumas, the phrase was originated by William Shakespeare. He used it in two different narrative poems from the 1590s. You can find the phrase in Venus and Adonis and also in The Rape of Lucrece. Truman is left standing in the street, shocked by what he's just witnessed. He's sure that was his father. How could they have whisked him away like that? We cut to a shot from Truman's point of view looking back along the street. A man was just roughly taken into custody or kidnapped or something on a bus, which he then chased down the street, screaming and pounding on the door. Looking back along his path, there's nothing. No one is acting like anything out of the ordinary has taken place. The only clue that what Truman saw really happened is the dachshund. He runs right in front of Truman with his leash still dragging behind. Before we meet Truman's mother, refiners, I think we need to take a break. It's been a full day. We've laid the groundwork and learned the details about Truman's world. Next time, our hero is going to get progressively restless. We'll find out about Fiji. He wants to travel. He wants to overcome his fears and leave the island. Truman is the perpetual innie, but he's starting to wonder what things might be like on the outside, if there even is an outside. More on that next time. We'll also sit down with Kristoff for a look behind the scenes of the show within a show as the Severed Origin series continues to break down the Truman Show. Before we shut down, a quick request for your help, Refiner, as hopefully you've heard, the Severed Podcast now has a Patreon page. Several podcast listeners have stepped up as $5 a month patron refiners. A little a month from a lot of people helps me keep the servers running and allows me to devote my time to producing the severed podcast as a retirement hobby instead of, you know, getting a real job. Join the fun as a patron refiner. We've got severance talk, plus some behind the scenes info and other goodies you won't get from the regular podcast. Find the severed page at patreon.com slash severed pod. That's patreon.com slash severed pod. Still keeping an eye out for production details and release dates for Severance Season 2. An intrepid refiner on Reddit just last week posted about a restaurant encounter she had with Deachin Lockman, who plays Ms. Casey. Deachin said she believed primary shooting should be finished up in a couple of months. This tracks with what we knew about the shoot schedule before the strike. Keep an eye on the Severed Facebook page for the latest updates on production schedules and potential release dates. Thanks so much for continuing to support these Origins episodes through the off-season. I've appreciated seeing your notes and comments saying the Origins apps are helping to keep you sane during the wait. I feel the same way. All right, refiners, time for you to get back to your Audi lives. Please exit via the elevator and remember, as always, stagger your exits. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate Severance podcast. Severed is written, 
produced and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV Plus or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.